This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey everybody, this is Lane with the Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast. Please go to the website, go to the networking tab and sign up for the investor database there. Today on the line, I have Sarah May. How are you doing, Sarah? Uh, good, Lane. Thanks for having me on. So Sarah is a former aerospace engineer who became passionate about real estate investing. She built up a rental portfolio and now moving up into larger syndicated multifamily deals with a great group of investors and helping people move their money out of the stock market and to physical assets like real estate. Yeah. She lives in Colorado with an amazing husband, Alex, and a two-year-old son, Landon, and enjoys the outdoors and activities like skiing, tennis, and biking. So Sarah, how much simple passive cash flow are you making today and how are you doing it? Oh, yeah, sure, Lane. So I guess I would say we're probably around six to 7000 a month in the passive cash flow. And we've done it pretty much the traditional way. We've uh, My husband and I both are engineers by training and uh, would save up for a down payment, buy a rental property, put some tenants in there and hold it long term. We've uh, primarily done two to four unit properties. Uh, we found that, uh, especially in our home market of Denver, Colorado, we were able to get a little better cash flow per uh, dollar uh, doing it doing it that way. And we've been doing rental properties now since 2011, and just slow and steady, kind of build up our portfolio to where we are now. Any idea what you're gonna do with these ten properties? Uh, good question. We're talking about selling one of them right now. Um, the market's pretty good here in Denver, but for the most part, we like cash flow. We plan to keep them long term and just keep running them out. We have property manager now for almost all of them, which really took a lot of the um, the burden off of us, management and time wise, and uh, just keep you know keep the properties and always looking for a new one and new opportunities. Um, but our focus right now really is more on the syndication, which just is getting a group of investors together to go after larger properties. And we kind of put to, put together the deal and then our investors front the money and get all the benefits of real estate without any of the management headaches or, um, oversight involved. That's kind of where we are at the moment. What is your Han Solo moment? For those of you guys don't know by now, the Han Solo moment is when Han Solo and his buddy Chewbacca from Star Wars were cruising the galaxy as low-life smugglers, but then crossed past Luke and Leia, and his life took a pivot. Describe a time in your life when you met this resistance and it was a catalyst for change. Yeah, good question. So I actually first started becoming a student of real estate probably in 2004, 2005, and was a college student at the time with you know very limited funds. Um, and actually didn't buy my first property until 2010 and first investment property until 2011. So it took a while for me to take action and have that pivot point in my life. But for me, it really was just knowing that my current career path wasn't something that would, that I would find fulfilling for the rest of my life and I needed to make a change. And to me, the most obvious way to do that just seemed like building up cash passive cash flow and um, supplementing my income and eventually replacing my income with real estate in order to free up my time to do other things that I enjoy. For me, you know, it kind of was two things that I had to have in order to take action. I first had to have 
the education and studied everything I could, all the different methods of real estate, trying to figure out which one best suited my personality and lifestyle. And then also having the desire to take action and actually change my situation for the better. So, you know, desire plus education equaled action on my part. And that was really the pivot point uh, of having that realization that I wanted to change and I wanted to have other income sources and free up more time to do to explore other interests and things I wanted to do with my life. Graduate college? Uh, 2007. You and I are pretty much aligned. I graduated in 2007. Working in corporate America, I just had a lot of bad experiences. And it kind of seems like a lot of people that I talked to had a lot of days at work or long periods of time where they just were unhappy. And do you recall some sort of event specifically uh, you can point back to that? <laughs> I mean, I know I have a lot written down that I have in this book that I'm writing, but I'm not ready to release it until I finally quit my job. Yeah. Oh, I so many. <laughs> for me, I think the two most frustrating things for me were sitting in four hour long meetings and nobody making a decision by the end of it. And you had just spent four hours of your time trying to come to a decision, but everything was decision by committee and uh, things just didn't happen very, very fast in the aerospace industry. And then also just having to, I don't know what the word is, but spin your wheels and keep doing the same thing over and over. Do you ever think of, you know, hey, you know, you've got a good life, you've, you've got a good husband, and well, what's wrong with me just staying here for <laughs> 20 years? I mean, you're not going to stay there for 40 years. I'm sure you guys are good at saving money. But I mean, why was that not an option? Well, I just, I think it just was eating me up inside having to kind of just be the corporate employee who just salutes and does what I'm told. There's very little appreciation for new ideas and doing things differently or trying to make things more efficient and seeing the way that things were run and how long processes, the processes took and how inefficient everything was just was very, very frustrating. And then seeing just how much money was being spent for very little output uh, also was was frustrating the amount of time in meetings and then just the general disorganization and lack of promotional opportunities unless you had hit a certain number of years with the company. Um, it seems like corporate America kind of wants to squash everybody into this box. And if you're new to the company, you have this very regimented promotional plan, but you have no opportunity to jump to the top of the ladder. Otherwise, I think companies think that that will demoralize morale for the people who are older and didn't get promoted. So it's just a very structured process and new younger people who have all this energy and enthusiasm just kind of get told, like, just go do your job and we don't want to hear all your great ideas. So that's challenging. In the yeah, I know that was what it was for me. I mean, the, it seems like you couldn't be a manager or like director or, or, you know, higher than that unless you had a bunch of white hair. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I don't know. I, sometimes I look like I'm 18 and <laughs> I'm still waiting for my white hair to come in. I remember there was one day where I was, um, you know, I was at the company for like seven, eight years. I was pretty much a veteran doing this for quite a while. And then they told me and these other interns, hey, go over there and do this. And I'm like, you know, hey, dude, I've been here for a long oh, time. Oh, you know? like, <laughs> And I, yeah. just, I, I thought it was funny at the time, but it... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how, how I understand. 
yeah, that's kind of just why I wanted to get out of it. And not saying that there's anything wrong with it. I mean, companies are that way for a reason. And maybe that's how they're able to stay in business for so long. But at the same time, when you're in that system and desiring more and um, more opportunity and ability for your work to be noticed and implemented kind of gets old after a while. Yeah, I think another thing I like is, you know, at corporate America, you've got all these people who have just stayed there for quite a while and, and you're quite frankly unproductive and pretty cranky and you come into the meetups that we go to. I mean, it's nice mm-hmm. to see, run into people like yourself that are jetic, collaborative, you know, just ready to take this on for themselves. Yeah, yeah totally agree. I mean, going to engineering conferences where everybody's, you know, not really wanting to be there and not really extroverted in the first place to going to real estate events where everybody's there because they want to be and passionate about what they're doing. It's a huge difference. So yeah, I've thought I've noticed the same thing. Yeah. And it's hard once you have that lens to see, go to those conferences, engineering conferences, and you know, nobody wants to be there. (laughs) Yeah. And everybody just talks about their, you know, their analysis they're doing or their project. Like, Engineers don't really open up and talk about like their life and goals and family or anything, at least in my experience. And that's a yeah. generalization. Obviously, there's exceptions to every world. But yeah, no, that's my data point, too. Not being one of the big boys investing quite yet, a.k.a. the accredited investor in the eyes of the SEC, it's tough to find good options for investing. But then I started investing in the American Homeowner Preservation Fund, or AHP Fund, which is crowdfunding the mortgage crisis in America. The fund collaborates with existing homeowners to keep them in their homes. It's a way to make great returns while feeling good about making a social impact. After investing myself in the fund, it was awesome when they approached me to become an advertiser of the company. You can start investing with as little as 100 bucks, and if you want the free Burn Zone book, please send me an email to lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. You burn the boats and uh, let this stuff happen naturally. Was there some kind of internal change that happened? Um, you know, I'd say kind of just getting to that point where I knew I just couldn't stay with my job the way it was any longer. And I had a lot more to give the world and things I wanted to accomplish that just were not going to be achievable staying in my current career path. So that was, you know, kind of the catalyst for change. But, it, it, you know, it did kind of take a while to figure out where we really wanted to go. I mean, we looked at, did we want to be wholesalers? Did we want to be house flippers? Did we want to invest in mobile home parks? Did we want to invest in assisted living? You know, what did we want to do? And kind of our first our first step that we did actually was a bit of a misstep. We decided we wanted to try to fix fix up and sell a property. Um, oh, no. Our, that our realtor had um, had recommended to us. And we were, you know, we'd seen HGTV and we're like, all right, this sounds like a great idea. And we even hired a contractor, but things just did not go according to plan. Like we ended up doing a lot of work there ourselves, plus just all the time driving to the property every day to make sure the contractor was doing what they were doing, what they were supposed to be doing. So that, you know, quote unquote investment was definitely a learning experience. Um, and I'd say the biggest lesson we learned was just that we didn't want to be house slippers. And from that deal, we made, you know, I think around $8,000 of profit after six months working on that thing. And if we had just kept it as a rental for an extra year, we would have made about $40,000 just from market appreciation. And now five years later from that flip, looking back, that house is actually worth double what we 
sold it for. So, you know, 170,000 or so uh, more than what we sold it for after fixing it up. Kind of just from that experience, it's like, man, you know, rental properties really have a lot more potential for for growth and they can be relatively passive. Um, obviously, it's still work if you're managing them yourself, but a lot more passive than a fix and flip property. So, you know, after that fix and flip experience, my husband Alex and I just decided to do buy and hold real estate and set the goal of buying two properties a year with two to four units each. And for the most part, up until the last, you know, year, year and a half of uh, where we've started to syndicate larger deals, we've stuck to that plan and it's worked out really well. So how did you guys cut through the dogma of, the, hey, real estate investing is flipping houses? I mean, I know a lot of new investors that come to me, they're like computer programmers and they can a buck fifty a year and you know they just get brainwashed by all this you know hgtv all the local meetups are all flipping houses how did, mm-hmm. didn't you guys see that too in denver oh yeah oh yeah i mean every the cool thing to do is to flip houses and i used to go to all the real estate conferences and seminars i could possibly get my hands on and pretty much all of them were the hype of buying low fixing up selling high you know four to six months later. And I guess the real catalyst for me was probably Rich Dad, Poor Dad and reading that book and realizing that for it to be, for property to be considered an asset, it has to put money into your pocket every month. And a fix and flip doesn't do that. It actually drains your pockets for a long time until you finally sell. And realizing that rental properties, hey, you know, they put money in your pocket every month. It's relatively passive as far as how much active involvement you need to have. And over time, it appreciates. So understanding the definition of assets and really, you know, diving into Rich Dad, Poor Dad and all of his other subsequent books. um, I'd say that was the first thing that we came across that really pointed us towards rental real estate. I know, um, you know, we had a real estate dinner here recently, and the story came up from one of Robert Kiyosaki's book, I think it was Cashflow Quadrant, where he talks about his, his uh, uncle, his rich uncle, took him out to the farm and he showed him all the cows. And he said, um, hey, you know, in this farm, they uh, they milk the cows sort of like cash flow with the houses. And look, mm-hmm. how, happy, look how happy the cows are, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're grazing the, the fields. And then he says, well, over there, they slaughter the cows like home flipping. And he's like, oh, yeah, the cows don't look very happy there. No, keep the cows happy. Keep the buying houses and... <laughs> Everybody's happy. Tenants have a nice place to live and the owner keeps making cash flow. And so what's a two-week experiment in a six-month project you're currently working on? Two-week experiment, I guess, would I would just say working on my tennis game. Uh, I just started a summer league and need to kind of get back in the game. So working on that. And then six-month project, you know, that that. I have to go back to um, a deal that we're working on right now. We're, we're actually sponsoring our very first syndication and putting that together. Um, property here in the suburbs uh, of Denver, be adding some amenities, covered parking, backyards, and doing a major interior renovation project, getting everything kind of up to market standards and you know raising rents and improving the place for everyone living there. And, you know, maybe even in six months, we'll have another property under contract by then. Plan underway and start making money for our investors. Yeah, so this is something I'm pretty interested in because I've kind of in the same shoes as you just starting out in the apartment investing world. I mean, it took you a while to find that first deal, especially in the seller's market. Yeah, it was, 
it was a very long process. It took a lot longer than I thought it would. So I had been educating myself on syndication and commercial properties and apartment buildings for probably, it's probably been over two and a half years at this point. And then a year, a little over a year ago, I came across two different investing groups, ended up joining with joining up with one of them. Um, it's an inve- investing group and education. And, you know, spent $27,000 to join this group and kind of thought, hey, from here, it's going to be going to be easy. I have all the tools that I need. I have I have a great mentor. I have a great group of like minded investors. I it's going to be, you know, a simple ordeal from here. And really, it took a long time to just find a deal that worked. And I think through the process, also just understanding how to analyze deals better, how to network with brokers, present yourself in the most favorable light. So it was a growth process while we were looking for properties. But that's been, you know, that's been a year of looking at properties, um, analyzing probably over 50 deals, putting in maybe probably over 100, actually. Um, putting in offers, letters of intent on 12 deals. And for the letters of intent, you know, we did hours and hours and hours of research um, just to get to that point to be able to submit that offer. And so when we kept hearing no, or you got second place, or the owner decided not to sell, you know, it was very discouraging for a long time, um, just thinking like, are we doing something wrong? Are we ever going to find a deal in this market? How how can we make the numbers work? Like we have an obligation to our investors to hit a certain level of returns, and you know there's other these other groups that are outbidding us. So how do we how do we make this work? And so it got it got pretty um, rough there at a, at some point. But I just knew we just had to stick to the process. It would fall our way eventually, and uh, just kept kept going. And sure enough. A property we had been on, you know, four and a half months prior ended up coming back to us and we got kind of an off-market opportunity to look at it and um, put in an offer and now we're under contract. So it all it all worked out, uh, maybe not exactly how I had envisioned it, but um, in a way it's better because by the time this property did come our way, we had that experience and understanding of the process and it's a great group of teammates with brokers and lenders and attorneys, et cetera, to make, to, to make the whole process much smoother. I think people don't realize, I mean, how much underwriting goes into the properties for it to actually come out to something that we discuss. I mean, it sounds like you took the more sniper approach analyzing deals. I, I've been doing like a shotgun approach, which I need to mm-hmm. change more into a rifle. I've just been analyzing deal after deal after deal. And then 99% of them just don't yeah. make any sense. I mean, the way I look at it is I look at the bottom of the page. If I don't hit 100% just with underwriting in five years, then it's a no deal. And, and it makes you realize how much people don't know how to analyze these properties and they're still buying them. I mean, I'm like, if I underwrite right. a property for four and a half, broker tells me like, well, what the heck do I know? Like the guy's just bought it for six and a half. And I'm like, well, that guy <laughs> probably overpaid, right? Overpaid. Like, exactly. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's definitely challenging. And I think at first we, we looked at a lot more deals and, you know, looked on LoopNet all the time and looked on all the brokers websites like weekly and, um, things like that. I think we analyzed all the deals like right at the beginning and then 
periodically, you know, more deals come out, but it's not that same frequency as um, some other things. And I think the other thing that really helped us not have to analyze as many deals was we got very specific with our criteria for what we were looking for. And especially in, in the Denver market, it's like, okay, we know we can't go above a certain point because that's just, you know, too big. But we also wanted to stay above um, above a certain point as well and actually be involved in properties where we could hire professional third-party property management, work with the brokers that we'd established um, a good working relationship with. So we kind of had that sweet spot of where we wanted to stay between. We knew what, you know, the age of the property, the markets, um, the condition, general features we wanted to have and also just communicate that with the brokers of, you know, what sort of returns we needed the property to provide, et cetera. So we were able to have a smaller selection of properties to look at. Anything that you kept thinking to yourself to keep it going and that, you know, when you're going through month six or seven or eight, nothing. Yeah. I guess I just always had this feeling in my gut that it was going to work out. And we were going to find something and, um, you know, had a few plan, plan B's and C's as well. If, you know, the Denver market didn't work out places where we could look outside of Colorado that were good, strong markets and, you know, wouldn't be too long of a plane ride to go and check on the property. But especially for our first deal, I really felt strongly that I wanted to be local, um, if at all possible. So I could go to the property whenever needed and check on things and make sure the work's getting done for our renovations and everything else. So really wanted to stay in Colorado and, but did have some plan B markets. And I mean, Denver's a little bit like Seattle, not as hot, but like, yeah, still have a lot of unsophisticated money that are just want to throw some money right. into apartments. So it's hard right. to find deals. <laughs> yeah. Took, took about a year. You know, what kept me going was just feeling like it all was going to work out. And I just had to keep you know, getting more educated on, um, on investing and stay true to the process, keep making offers and analyzing deals. And eventually it would, good things would happen. So, uh, you know, I wish I had more of a (laughs) quantitative answer, but that really was it. That's kind of just what kept me going. I know a lot of people say that it's just to be a little bit of unrealistic in your expectations and just believe that's going to (laughs) happen. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I mean, the other thing I haven't talked about yet is so, you know, I'm not doing this alone. I have a great, you know, obviously my husband's helping me. And we also have two co-sponsors from Dallas uh, from our investor group who have a great track record and have done a number of syndications before. And without them, you know, we'd probably be looking at smaller deals and having to change our our strategy a little bit, but by partnering with them kind of opened up some properties just because of their credibility and track records. Can't emphasize enough, you know, having a strong team and, you know, partnering with people as necessary. If you don't have some skills or the track record, you can always find somebody who does and maybe doesn't have, you know, the time or doesn't have the, um, education in that particular niche yeah i know after you know we come back from dallas it seems like you know you're all motivated because you're all in a room with people who are doing it you know struggling along too analyzing deals and doing it but then when you come home and especially coming back to your normal job in cubicle land it's so difficult to keep that momentum going mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah the mindset of people in some of the real estate circles is definitely different than the mindset of w2 employees where I hear you, Lane. Like I would try, I would go to work 
when Alex and I were, you know, just doing um, our own rental properties and would you know, try to mention here and there, you know, to close friends at work and colleagues that were doing real estate and stuff. But I kind of had to keep it hush hush because I didn't want people to think, oh, I'm distracted at work because I have some rental properties. But, it, you know, people just didn't really get it. Like I would try to start conversations and people just thought it was, you know, landlording and fixing toilets and weren't really interested in the financial benefits of it. Yeah, a lot different being a W-2 employee living for the weekend, which I was for a long time, and kind of being a real estate entrepreneur where you're just, you're excited and always looking for another project. So something that you recently thought burning your cash on for time savings or improvement in quality of life? Typically, I would say I've spent most of my extra cash on things like vacations, um, quality time with my family, things like that. If I had to burn my cash on something right now, it'd probably be a new car. My car's showing her age. Um, although I hate to get rid of it because she still runs great, but yeah, probably, probably a new car if I had to <laughs> burn my money on something, but in general, spend money on vacations and make the memories that way. Yeah. I'll give you a tip. I would lease it. And buy lease it? All right. All right. That's what awesome. I did. Same thing. I had that, that old uh, old car since college, and it was about time to buy something halfway decent. So that's right. what I did. And, you know, you want that money for down payments or syndication, so lease it. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because it's like all our money has either been going into real estate investments or, you know, our splurge is vacation. So. Right. And you can grow that point. money 20 30% a year on your own. I mean, What's a 5%? Yeah. A lot of these leases are like 0%. Yeah, that's but a good call. For most people, probably own their car because they can't grow their money at all. Or they can't even save it. But I think you're on the different right. side of the spectrum. Yeah, interesting. What did you end up buying or leasing? Uh, Mercedes. Oh, cool. Very nice. Yeah, I need a, I need an upgrade myself. <laughs> you deserve it. Uh, well, I never want to say that. but it's Time be to nice. celebrate on your deal. So something that you've changed your mind on recently? I guess this isn't super recent, but one of the things I've learned just being a rental property owner is, you know, sometimes, you know, you can't let your ego get in the way of what you buy. We buy a lot of class C and B workforce housing um, for our rental properties. It's okay not to have the nicest property on the block. You actually can make more money in properties that are in not as nice of neighborhoods because the, the price to buy the property is a lot lower, but yet the rent is only marginally lower than some of those nicer neighborhoods. So yeah, don't you don't have to buy the nicest property on the block. And then also, you know, one thing for me that was a mental hurdle was uh, running to Section 8 tenants. I know some people love it, some people hate it. Uh, we've found it to be, to be fine, and it actually has some benefits, like getting a guaranteed rent check from the government every month. And then also just being able to provide these people a nice, safe, clean place to live, um, which sometimes they haven't had that before and haven't had landlords who actually kept the property, you know, up to date and fixed things that broke. Yeah, that was one of the things where Ego originally could have kept getting in the way. One example was our very first rental property that my husband and I bought was in this little area of Denver, like a 1950-something property. And you walk in, it's just bare bones. Like there's vinyl on the on the floor, white walls, you know, old light fixtures, dated kitchen. And kind of walking in there, it's like, oh, I don't know if I like this very much. 
but then I had to remind myself, hey, you know, this is going to be a rental property and it's functional, it's clean. And it's not, you know, the newest, shiniest place on the block, but it's going to be a great rental and going to be a great place for somebody to live. And that's actually been our best performing rental property to date. And we almost passed it up. It seems like people like to say they own places here in Seattle, just to say they own that, you know, they don't make any money. But what I say is like, yeah, I've, I wouldn't live there, but have I lived in there? Would I have lived in there at some point in my life? Yeah, I probably would have. Mm-hmm. Tony Robbins identifies two large concepts that we today show you to gain perfection at. First is the art of fulfillment, and the second is the sense of achievement. So if you died tomorrow, and I were to email this to your kids a couple of decades later when they actually would listen, what is your first secret or hack to the science of achievement? I'd say my only habit is the morning coffee and writing to-do list. I journal occasionally, which I find helpful as well. But then, you know, I think the other thing that just any entrepreneur has to have is just kind of being persistent, knowing exactly what you want and being very specific about it. And I think when you're when you're persistent and you know what you want, it makes finding opportunities a lot easier. Finding that what you previously thought was impossible could actually be possible with some hard work and education and making sure you have the tools you need to be successful. What is your secret or hack to the art of fulfillment? The other side, how do you contribute back to the most fulfilling parts of your day? You know, I think the whole reason... I started out on this real estate journey was just for having the option of what to do with my time, Um, not having to trade my hours for dollars, but being able to, you know, free up some of that time so that I can spend more, spend more of it with my family, uh, spend more of it outdoors in Colorado. I love all the outdoor activities here. Also just working on real estate. Like I think that actually is you know, something I'm passionate about. And I've always loved it, loved the numbers side, loved the tangibility of it. I uh, just want to keep keep doing that. Definite things I would like to do more in the future, like helping with financial education for kids, help educating people on healthy food choices and things like that. Anything we missed or you want to get your contact information out there for people to get a hold of you? Oh, sure. Yeah, no, that's been great talking with you, Lane. Thanks so much for having me on. If people want to get a hold of me, you can just check out my website, it's www.regencyinvestmentgroup.com. Contact me through the contact form, or you can always just email at sarah at regencyinvestmentgroup.com. Thanks so much, everyone, for, uh, for listening. It's been great. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Lane. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.